0: The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and today, I'm afraid I'm going to make a lot of you mad. Strunk and White. Yep. The Elements of Style. It's that little book that's so popular. I'm sorry, but that book just isn't... As godly as it may seem, and it's my responsibility as a linguist to let you know. Yes, I know your parents gave it to you when you went off to college. It's a neat size and makes a handy gift, and all of us love E.B. White, especially because there's something ineffably magic about Charlotte's Web. I know, but really, at the end of the day, the mystique of Strunk and White is basically just that it's popular. You know what? So was Baywatch. And as with Baywatch, much of Strunk and White was of its time, but it's been superseded now. And much of Strunk and White is just wrong, as like with Baywatch. Here's a good quote on Strunk and White from linguist Jeff Pullum. He really has been railing against strunk and white for a very long time, and he does it better than I ever could. At one point, he said, it's sad. Several generations of college students learn their grammar from the uninformed bossiness of strunk and white, and the result is a nation of educated people who know they feel vaguely anxious and insecure whenever they write however or then me or was or which but can't tell you why. The land of the free and the grip of the elements of style. It's things like that little book and the teachings behind it that are responsible for cute little moments like this in a song from, oh, this is something really unusual that I'm going to do in this episode. I'm going to play some things from Broadway musicals. So this is from Guys and Dolls. This is Marry the Man Today. And for those of you who have seen Guys and Dolls or been in it like me, I'm just going to leave it hanging what part I played. There is this part. In the Marry the Man Today lyric. Listen to this. Now doesn't that kind of apply to you and I? You and me. Whatever. So we're talking about why somebody would even say you and I in that situation rather than you and me. There's a whole regime. And that sweet little strunken white book has a lot to do with promulgating a lot of really questionable Ideas Now, like everything, or almost everything, it has its good points. It it really does. There are things you can learn from Strunk and White about how to write more effectively or just more neatly, more aesthetically, which anybody might want to know. And so, for example, you might write, «His speech was marked by disagreement and scorn for his opponent's position». Not great. It would be better to say his speech was marked by disagreement with and scorn for his opponent's position. Sure, you'll you'll learn that in Strunk and White. Or the French, the Italians, Spanish and Portuguese. Clumsy. Better. The French, the Italians, the Spanish and the Portuguese. Sure, you get a lot of that. Or even a standard complaint against Strunk and White among those who complain about it is that it rules out using the passive and instead just says, use the active voice. But that's actually not exactly true of the text itself. What Strunk and White says is that you shouldn't write sentences like, my first visit to Boston will always be remembered by me. Or, at dawn, the crowing of a rooster could be heard. But the thing is, almost nobody would write sentences like that. I don't think that any of us think that Something like, at dawn, the crowing of a rooster could be heard, is a good sentence. And strung and white is okay with something like, the dramatists of the Restoration are little esteemed today. That's fine. That's the passive, and nobody would call that a bad sentence, and they don't either. So it's the fault of others that this has encouraged an idea that the passive shouldn't be used at all. Notice, for example, that there's nothing wrong with that sentence at all. Nobody would say I shouldn't have used the passive. I mean, if you think about it, why would English have a passive if there was something wrong with it? Why would this whole construction and a rather sophisticated one develop if on some scientific level it was wrong? It wouldn't make any sense. So, and white is not evil. It is not utterly ridiculous. But goodness, you have to handle that damn thing with caution. And I, I want you to understand why. Let's get out our copy of Strunk and White. Hear that? And so we're going to page through it. Now, <laughs> I'm sure that most of you could tell that this is not a Strunk and White that I'm handling because the book is about eight pages long, but that wouldn't sound good in this format. And so here we go. Just, just bear with me, have a, a little imagination. So I'm going to page through it and let's find some of the parts that are wrong. For example, strunk and white on pronouns. Goodness, goodness, gracious. Here's a sentence that's supposed to be what you should write. The culprit, it turned out, was he. What the hell kind of sentence is that? The culprit, it turned out, was him. That's the way any sane person who wanted to have friends, date, or reproduce would say it. The culprit, it turned out, was he. What is that? I mean, that's simply poor advice. And it's also more indication, if any was needed, that this whole business about subjects and objects and how you have to use the subject form in certain situations, it's off. And some of you may remember the whole podcast I did about this. Yes, Diana, I know you don't agree. You are not alone. But still, I'm sure that all of you agree that the culprit, it turned out, was he is shit. And yet, Strunk and White has that as the way that you should put it. Yes, there was a Broadway musical based on the play and movie The Man Who Came to Dinner. It was called *Sherry*, And I want to play for you one of the lyrics from it. This is sung by Christine Baranski, who I think most of us now know as Diane from The Good Wife. I don't watch this follow-up one, but The Good Wife was perfect. And this is Christine Baranski. Listen to her sing this lyric. Darling. come and show us your glory. The crowd at El Morocco is snarling about some dumb crumb who created mass disaster kicking Elsa in the aster. Blossom! Awesome. What? That was me. No. Yes. It was me, should she have sung It was I. No. No, and this was somebody from the old days, dressed nicely, proper kind of person. And yet, that is in this book that we're encouraged to think of as having some kind of biblical authority. Do you mind me asking a question? Whoops. Me and my barbaric grammar. Because I was supposed to say, do you mind my asking a question? Well, I don't say that. Do you mind me asking a question is perfectly fine. Well, Strunk and White... Didn't think so. And you want to know why? Because if you say, do you mind me asking a question, then there's a danger that I might mean me as opposed to hypothetical other people. I kid you not. That is the justification. So you're supposed to say, do you mind my asking a question for clarity? But when have you ever thought about it that way? I mean, nobody sits there and thinks, oh, goodness, does she mean herself or herself herself? Plus, these other people that could theoretically be here but aren't. That has nothing to do with human psychology or social psychology or sanity. You would never think of that. Now, maybe William, I hear he was called Will, Will Strunk, may have looked at, do you mind me asking a question on paper? And because maybe he had less to do because there was no social media yet, he decided, well, you could think of it that way, just like technically black is the absence of color. But really, we see it as the color black. In the same way, you might think, do you mind me asking a question could be taken in this rather fantastical way, but it never is. And so that means that it's not unclear to say, do you mind me asking a question? And yet I think many of us feel a certain vague eldritch twinge of guilt saying, do you mind me asking out of some sense that it, quote unquote, really is, do you mind my asking. It's wacky advice. And, you know, really, it's a clue that Strunk and White is written by just, just people. They're very smart people, but like all of us, they're just people. What is the authority of Strunk and White? If you can really just think of it as a book, thinking it like the Bible, think of it as text rather than scripture. Why do we invest it with the authority that we do Beyond familiarity, I really do think that it's partly, I almost mean this, I think it's partly the sound of Strunk's name. Strunk. It sounds like you dropped a sink on the floor and you're not going to lift it back up. There's something final about dropping a sink on the floor when that happens, which of course it does all the time. Strunk, like strong strike, strict, stringent, strunk. It feels right because that name sounds like he knew what he was talking about. You get the feeling he knew how to build a shelf. Strunk. If his name was Dingle, for example, the book wouldn't be in print. Think about it. Dingle and White. No, there's no no authority there just because Dingle doesn't sound as authoritative as Strunk. I almost mean this. And more to the point, what was he like? Well, he's gone now so he can't beyond Colbert or something. But actually what Strunk and White is, is E.B. White gathering and then adding to a document that Strunk circulated informally when he was alive a hundred years ago plus now to students in his composition classes. And E.B. White actually gives a beautiful description that brings Strunk alive. From every line there peers out at me, the puckish face of my professor, his short hair parted neatly in the middle and combed down over his forehead, his eyes blinking incessantly behind steel-rimmed spectacles as though he had just emerged into strong light, his lips nibbling each other like nervous horses, his smile shuttling to and fro under a carefully edged mustache. You can smell that man, but notice he was just human, his lips nibbling each other like nervous horses. I don't even know what that means. But you imagine this kind of rabbity man. He is some guy, you know, and he has certain notions as to what sentences look better on the page and which sentences sound better. Don't we all? But he's just some guy. And E.B. White, well, Charlotte's Web is a joy forever. The first movie I have concrete memory of is the rather inferior cartoon version of 1973. I remember loving the songs, although I don't remember them now. But the book was very good, and Stuart Little is only slightly lesser. I've never quite gotten the appeal of The Trumpet of the Swan. That one is just kind of ivory-soap boring, but a lot of people like it. It's still in print. And I'm not old enough to remember reading E.B. White in The New Yorker, but I have read a few of the pieces from then. He did a very interesting one about what life was like before air conditioning. That's a more crucial dividing line than we often think. So yes, E.B. White, great, but he was just human too. And there's so many things in Strunk and White where really they're just kind of making it up or, or they're taking it from other people. And I want us to realize that when we use drunken white, which we still can, but we have to understand what the nature of authority is when it comes to these language and composition issues. Have you ever felt guilty about the way you almost certainly, nevertheless, still do use hopefully? Hopefully, she'll come tomorrow. And then there's always somebody in the back of the room who says something like, Oh, well, really, you shouldn't say that. And then you say, well, why? And they say, well, doesn't that mean that she's going to come hopefully? And, you know, there's nothing that you can really say back. But no, that's another one of those black is the absence of light things. It means that we hope she'll come tomorrow. Not that she's going to arrive glowing with some sort of expectation. Hopefully. These are sentential adverbs. It's just the way any language works. It doesn't mean she's going to come in a state of hope because if it did, then how about she's certainly going to come tomorrow? How about that? Now, nobody in the back of the room says, does that mean that she's going to come very much assured of herself? Nobody says that because nobody really happened to think of it. Hopefully got singled out like that kid in sixth grade who all of a sudden everybody stopped liking, and no, that was not me. Same thing, though, with supposedly. Well, she supposedly is going to come tomorrow. Does that mean that she's going to come in, I don't even know what it would mean, a hypothetical fashion or something like that? No. Well, that means that the whole hopefully business, is just a a kind of a myth. It's something that somebody who probably had an awful lot of money and therefore didn't have to work, came up with because they had a little too much spare time. And now here we still are beating ourselves up over that instead of the impending disappearance of bats and bees. That's a problem, not hopefully. Or, the candidate hosted a dinner for 50 of her workers. The meeting was chaired by Mr. Oglethorpe. Those were two sentences of English. You know what? Strunk and white. Doesn't like Considers those sentences suspect. So what's wrong with the candidate hosted a dinner for 50 of her workers? Well, didn't you know that it's wrong to use host, a noun, as a verb? Apparently that's suspect. Or the meeting was chaired by Mr. Oglethorpe. Well, chair, chairman, that's supposed to be a noun. How dare we have the gumption to use a noun as a verb? What's interesting is that Strunk and White says that people are doing it these days. And, you know, these days in that case is like 700 years ago. And today, people still say that people are making facts into a verb. I remember people saying that back in the 80s and being angry about it. Fifteen years ago, I knew somebody who didn't like that. We're using structure as a verb. Why? Because it's supposed to be a noun. okay? but now it's a verb. It's the way English has always worked. If you don't like facts and structure, And if 700 years ago, you didn't like host and chair. And remember, it wasn't 700 years ago. It was just in the early 20th century. If you didn't like it, that means that you don't like view. You don't like silence. You don't like worship and you don't like copy because all four of those began as nouns and then came to be used as verbs. And nobody had a thing to say about it because people had to work harder (laughs) in the past, I guess. But now we're often told that it's wrong for a noun to change into a verb. And I'm not sure why, because we love mutability and flexibility and creativity and think different and all of this. But let a noun jump into the verb cage and somehow all of a sudden it's like somebody who doesn't want somebody in their swimming pool or something like that. I think we might want to let that go. And to the extent that we have, we can't swallow it in Strunk and white. Here's another one. And this one you've got to really be careful of. There is nothing sadder than watching somebody write something beautiful, thinking that it isn't beautiful because of having internalized Strunk and White's idea that we must omit needless words, omit needless words. So keep it short. Now, there's some sense to it, but that can very easily be taken too far. So, for example, here is a sentence that supposedly is not as graceful as what it could be. The fact that few people know ancient Greek anymore makes it essential that engageable translations of Homer be always available to the general public. Sounds good to me. Read it again. The fact that few people know ancient Greek anymore makes it essential that engageable translations of Homer be always available to the general public. Well, no, according to Strunk and White, that's no good because it should be. Most people's ignorance of ancient Greek makes it essential that engageable, because that's shorter. So not the fact that few people know, but most people's ignorance. But you notice that the problem here is that there's a bit of a tin ear to the nuances of words. So few people know ancient Greek anymore. There's no value judgment involved. People's ignorance of ancient Greek. Well, technically, if you go by the dictionary definition of ignorance, you can say that ignorance and not knowing are the same thing. But no, there's a, there's a judgment implied in ignorance. And so, most people's ignorance of ancient Greek makes it essential, implies that there's something wrong with the fact that education these days does not generally include having to wade our way through ancient Greek. And I think few of us think that education should go back to that. And even if we don't have any feelings about it, ignorance is just too pungent a word in this case. In the same way, the fact that he failed, blah, 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 blah. Now, you could shorten to his failure meant that blah, 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 but notice failure. Failure's too mean. Failure is, is Willie Loman. Failure is being in your 50s and wondering whether you've hit the top. Failure. That's different from the fact that he failed just that one day. So many things like this, the, the pairs that you can come up with. So, she gave him a kiss. She kissed him. Now, she kissed him is shorter. But think about the difference. She gave him a kiss. That's like, <laughs> just that. She kissed him. Mm. She kissed him means something different from she gave him a kiss. Or we took a rest. Okay. <laughs> We rested. Well, then you're God after the third day, or you're a body that was in motion. Or we walked in the park. A little clinical, but you could say it. We walked in the park. It's almost like you're trying to avoid saying what you were doing, but we walked in the park. He took a walk in the park. That's real. There's a little more drama in it. You're more interested. You wonder what he did in the park. He, ooh, (laughs) that sounds a little odd, but you know what? Mike, leave it in. So he walked in the park. And then he took a walk in the park. This is a lovely, undersung little ancient song called Would You Like to Take a Walk? Listen to it. It's it's an earworm. I guarantee you, you are going to be humming this all week. Here it goes. Mm, would you like to take a walk? Mm, do you think it's going to rain? Mm, how about it, Desperella? Gee, the moon is yellow. Something good will come from that. Mm. Would that really have been better as just, would you like to walk? No. Would you like to take a walk? Because it's it's flirty. It isn't pushy. It sounds like something you'd like to do, not just mechanically walking. Imagine, would you like to walk? That's not a good song. By the way, if you liked that voice, that was the wonderful Annette Hanshaw. And she sang... In the late 20s and early 30s in that voice that sounds so approachable, so modern, so down to earth. For those of you who like old songs but don't like the way people sang 100 years ago, Annette Hanshaw is very handy. There are many collections of Annette Hanshaw at this point, and you can play it while you're cooking or while you're taking a bath. There's even a whole movie called Sita Sings the Blues, an interesting animated film accompanied by Annette Hanshaw Recordings. It's really a trip. I recommend enjoying it with wine or something else. He walked in the park. He took a walk in the park. So we have to watch out for this business of omit needless words. Yes, omit needless words. But the examples that you find in Strunk and White tend towards creating meanings that you wouldn't intend or taking the vividness out of what otherwise would be human and perfectly fine writing. Finally, (laughs) shall and will. So according to Strunk and White, I mean, it's funny. There are two things that they say. I've never been able to quite make sense of the paragraph. But first of all, you use shall in the first person singular, and then in the second and third person singular, singular you use will so it's i shall but you will he she it will um all right that's nice that's not the way anybody talks but there you go but then there's there's more somehow the idea is that if you use shall and will In the same person, the idea seeming to be that you can, and I'm not sure how that fits in with what they first say, but if you can, then shall and will have different meanings. And so shall is about your belief, but will is about determination. And so (laughs) these two sentences, a swimmer in distress cries, I shall drown. No one shall save me. But a suicide says, I will drown. No one shall save me. Wait a minute. Nobody would ever say, I shall drown, no one shall save me. Imagine you're flailing out there in the ocean. Shall is the last thing that will come out of your mouth. My favorite sentence like this, nobody would ever say, why have you stabbed me? That's not a sentence. If somebody stabs you, you would say, why did you stab me? Why have you stabbed me is a beautiful sentence, but it doesn't fit into any plausible human experience. And in any case, The idea that shall is belief and will is determination. Who said? Where'd they get it? You know where they got it? John Wallace. Well, who's he? 1653 is when he wrote it. And it was just because. Just made it up. Brilliant man. He helped invent calculus. He invented the symbol for infinity. And then there was one week where his output dried up completely and he seemed to be less charismatic than he had been before. And upon examination, it turned out that the reason for that was that he was dead and he stayed that way. John Wallace, he wasn't a linguist. I mean, he wrote his version of how he thought English grammar should go and he got there faster than most people, but he just kind of made it up. It's the way he wanted shall and will to be. And now that's been passed on so that even I sometimes have thought to myself and then smacked myself in the back of the head metaphorically for even thinking about it. Am I using shall correctly when the truth is these rules that we were taught and instantly forgot because they don't make any sense really is just something that some dead person made up. And so listen to this one last clip. This is from wonderful town. A musical with a score by Leonard Bernstein, for the record, Stein or Steen, I don't know. And that's something that's legitimate because I'm sure that the family has a view on it. See, that's the sort of thing where there's a reason to worry because I'm probably mispronouncing it. But Shall, Will, Who Shall Save Me, et cetera. No, but Wonderful Town is a Bernstein-Stein score. And it's not about people walking around talking about how wonderful New York is. It's nothing that stupid. If you know me to an extent by now, you know I wouldn't enjoy that. There's never a song called This is a Wonderful Town. It's a great piece of work. This is from one cynical song from it. It's a woman who's having trouble maintaining a consistent dating life and this is something that she says that one should not do in this bygone world. Well, that's actually, I hate to say it's not bygone. Where a woman might feel, unfortunately, that she's supposed to pretend not to be intelligent in order to be attractive. You found your perfect mate. And it's been love from the start. He whispers, yours I want the woo I give my heart. Don't say, I love you too, my dear. Let's never, never part. Just say, I'm afraid you've made a grammatical error. It's not to who I give my heart, it's to whom I give my heart. You see, with the use of the preposition to, who becomes the indirect object, making the use of the word whom imperative, which I can easily show you by drawing a very simple chart. That's a fine way to lose a man. (laughs) (laughs) It's rules like those, and no, I don't think that anybody is going to have the trouble that This person did in the song. You know what was wonderful town? One last thing about wonderful town. Usually I like to play the original cast album here. That was from the 2003 revival. And so that was Donna Murphy singing. I saw that twice. It was so good. And the great thing about wonderful town, I'm going to say this here because I've never heard anybody mention it. And I can tell it's about to get lost to history is that for some reason they cast the chorus short. And so everybody in the chorus was fantastic doing what chorus members do, but none of them were taller than about 5'9". It was very charming. It was, as we say these days, or at least people I've heard are saying, adorbs. So isn't it time that we just close old Strunk and White? So here we go. Mm, No more of that. And we're just going to have a healthier alternative. I recommend Steve Pinker's The Sense of Style. It's much more sensible. It's much more modern. You can use it as a stocking stuffer. Strunk and White, you should stuff. Well, Strunk and White is not that bad. There is some useful advice in it, but do read it with a grain of salt. Several of them, frankly. And especially wherever its advice feels a little archaic or off. Arbitrary, And you're wondering, upon what authority precisely are they recommending that? Always know that the answer is basically none. None at all. Our next episode is going to be an interview show. I'll bet a lot of you will like that one better than this one. We are going to talk about how American English is infecting British English with Paul Baker, who's written a very interesting new book on the subject, which I haven't read yet, but I will have fixed that By then. In any case, you can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. This show was edited, as always, by Mike Wolo. And for those of you who don't know who the host is, it is I. See? Any day. Every field has its own lingo, but the world of finance is especially rife with jargon. Slate Money, Slate's weekly podcast about business and finance, will decode all that technical talk. Every Saturday, Felix Salmon of Fusion, Slate's Moneybox columnist Jordan Weissman, and political risk consultant Anna Shemansky provide a weekly roundup of the most important stories from the worlds of business and finance. Listen to a few episodes, and you'll be able to throw around obscure terms, too.